Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, tēnā koutou katoa e It's wonderful to see you here at the beginning of summer. Uh, I'm Bernard Hickey and co-host, <laughs> co-host Peter Bale, wearing yeah, striped so shirt as well. So-called summer. Yeah, but Bernard, I haven't gone full Waiheke hippie the way you've gone. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ, you'll be, yeah, yeah. You'll be buying you'll be buying loaves of bread from Matthias soon and vegetables from Uta. You know, it's it's just going to be, you, you've gone the full, you've gone the full hippie. And... It will cost three times as much. And I have to say, after we've done this hoon, I will be running out the door, running down to the beach and diving into the water. And it will be the highlight of my day. Oh, good on you. So you should. I've been a bit, I've been a bit, I noticed, I looked out into Hoon Bay a minute ago and I did notice that people were swimming. Um, and I am tempted to go down there, but it's just, I don't know, it doesn't feel quite like summer yet. I think summer has been postponed until March, which I don't like at all. Well, El Nino is supposed to be coming, but we've had these days of endless clouds and rain, and and I'm not here for it. I am here for the sun, and uh, it better come soon. I think we're into that end of term feeling with with work and politics and all of that at the moment. Yeah, kind of. I don't know. I'm 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 weaving from from deep depression to elation, you know, constantly, sometimes within the same sentence, and. I don't know. Christmas just seems like a long time ago. There's much discussion in my sort of associated families about Santa and secret Santa. And so oh. I've had to persuade one entire family to not to, to abandon their let's not have any presents uh, idea because that just oh. seems so ridiculous because, of course, what is Christmas without presents? You know, so we're having a secret Santa. And then another one is having stealing secret Santa, which I like. So the economist in me would say, you know, um, uh, we consume, therefore we are. Yes, absolutely. We buy, we consume. I want to consume more. Ne- Actually, one of my one of my New Year's resolutions is going to be buy more shit next year. Buy more stuff. Just, you know, we know, we're, and more expensive stuff and more gadgets. I still need some life-changing gadgets. <laughs> well, we will hear it later on in today's show from Catherine Dyer about this whole issue of consumption and whether we can grow our economies with or without fossil fuel, because the guy who's in charge of reducing emissions said said this week the idea of uh, getting rid of fossil fuels meant we were all going back to live in caves, which which didn't go down well. Yeah, well, what was kind of interesting for that was was you know it was I mean, he, funny enough I was looking at him and you know that thing where people used to take pictures of the watches that Vladimir Putin had or the Pope had, but particularly Vladimir Putin. And, you know, I think his salary of a year is something like $150,000 equivalent. And he would frequently be pictured wearing a two hundred dollars or $300,000 watch. And you think, God, he does very well with his, you know, on his salary to afford that. And the thing I noticed about uh, Sheikh Jabba was that he has a Richard Meal watch very conspicuously on his wrist. And um, I looked them Do up. Do you know how now. much they are? Well, they're more, that particular one is well over $200,000. And it's the most ostentatious thing you've ever seen in your life. But anyway, he is the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And he's also the head of COP28. And as I've said to you before, possibly, Bernard, what I find when I used to go to uh, Dubai every month or so for work, it only takes about two days, and all of a sudden, you think it's entirely legitimate to go to the watch department of one of the malls, which is the size of any mall in New Zealand, is just the watch department. And you think, oh, that Rolex looks rather nice, or that Richard Meal looks rather nice, and all of a sudden, you've got a watch mortgage. We are rapidly making ourselves unapproachable and unrepresentative of the human population. Yeah, Peter. exactly, exactly. So, um, Catherine, we were just defaming Sheikh, Sheikh Jabba, the, uh, the the head of the uh, head of COP twenty eight, for the rather ostentatious watch he's been he's been wearing at COP twenty eight. But you know, he also <laughs> in that conversation that was leaked with uh, Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland. You know, really let the cat out of the bag, which is that he is a fossil fuel guy, and as he said, there is no science that we need to reduce fossil fuels, and yet he's running COP twenty eight. 
So do we all just slit our wrists at this point, or, or and including our, when our watches will drop off after we've slit our wrists, of course? <laughs> Not that Abu Dhabi's cut, cut people's hands off. That's another country over there. My take on it all is that the the extent to which they're not getting away with so much of the bullshit at this cop mm. conference is actually a good thing. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, that whole exchange, it was like, tell us what you really think. It was brilliant. <laughs> Earlier today, uh, Catherine and I had a, a really good chat about this and the idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant in any debate and and definitely in the uh, climate debate and when you hear what people really think but also see yeah, what... we have got too much sunlight haven't we isn't that the problem not enough we need more sunlight <laughs> yeah unabated, unabated sunlight yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, lots of sunlight is you know having an impact we, we talked about it in a bit more depth and you can all uh, listen and and read that over at Catherine's weekly climate roundup but just briefly, Catherine, on that that sunlight, that more data, more exposure, it is having a bit of an impact, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I, I, I mean, I'm not overly, I guess, optimistic about what the ultimate outcomes of this um, conference are going to be, but that's really because the stuff that they have to do now, it's getting hard, it's getting costly, and it's and, you know, and it it means we have to change a few paradigms about the way we think about things. And I think that the first step towards that is getting more of this kind of um, really big truthiness coming out at these things is, truthiness. is, is helpful for that. Truthiness. That's a word I haven't heard for a while. Yeah. Real true truthiness. And, and back with data. And that's one of the interesting things that's come out of COP28 is Al Gore, oh, uh, he of the Inconvenient Truths, um, has gotten in touch with a bunch of satellite owners and uh, AI developers and He's now coming at everyone with the data. Yeah, he co-founded an organisation called Climate Trace Initiative, and they chose this conference to kind of unload a whole bunch of the data that they've been looking at, which comes from A, satellites, and B, AI is involved in there somewhere, which helps them to identify exactly where, um, with quite a bit of degree of accuracy, where there are um, point sources of greenhouse gas emissions. So carbon dioxide, yes, but also methane and, and nitrous oxide and all those. I mean, methane seems to be, Catherine, the big thing. I mean, the, the, the big thing, I mean, if we're not slitting our wrists and letting our Richard Mule watches um, slide off into the sand, this, this attention to methane has to be really positive, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's two ways of looking at it. One way is that it's a distraction from actually reducing fossil fuel production, but also on the other hand, it is you know there are real there is a real need to reduce the amount of leakage that's going on from methane mm. and the and the flaring of at oil and gas productions and all that sort of thing. And one of the things I'm suggesting is that this satellite data coming out that everybody can go and look at, and we've got a link to it in my roundup this week, so you can actually mm. go online and have a look for yourself at where the point sources of greenhouse gas emissions are in your neighbourhood, like it goes mm. down to a really detailed level, I think that level of revealing exactly... I don't want to know where the methane sources are in my particular neighbourhood, actually, thank you very much, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> that, that amount of information about particularly methane le leakages in oil and gas production yeah. facilities, because for a long time, you know, this goes back to your story about natural gas being a bridging fuel. If the amount of leakage from pipelines and all of the, you know, production plants and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing gets above something like 3% of total production, then that makes it more polluting than burning coal. And so there have been a whole series of investigations where they've done sampling and looked at different bits and said, oh, it's quite high, but it really depends on, you know, what kind of pipes you're using and how old they are. And, all, you know, so it, so there's been a lot of it depends. Well, this satellite data is going to show you exactly what is happening. And I think that that really endangers the American narrative of natural gas as a bridging fuel and so they're all at the negotiating table now saying, yes, we will find the leaks and plug them. You know, we will actually do something about this now. And I think they will because we'll know if they don't. Yeah, it was so interesting also because it's come partly out of that discovery that Tajikistan was doing A, a lot of flaring and B, that its valves were not terribly good. And I noticed the other day, presumably from that Al Gore group, that Libya, you know, which is essentially a failed state but still producing enormous amounts of oil, is the biggest emitter per tonne of oil extracted. 
of methane, partly because presumably it's it hasn't had any investment in its in its oil infrastructure. But I mean, what what seems to have happened? Like Norway, also UAE, they found was flaring daily from their flaring methane from their production plants every day, even though they had committed previously to reducing yes. by thirty percent or something by twenty thirty. So and they hadn't really done anything. And I think the threat that that was all going to come out in the wash with all of this data coming out has got them to the table. Yeah. And, and Norway, of course, weirdly doesn't flare much anymore, and and has been has been not flaring for a very very long time. What happens to the methane if you don't flare it though? Do they just turn it into uh, into more gas, and but do it at some expense? Is that the, is that the trade off here with methane? When you're flaring it, you're you're burning it off right, which is better than simply just releasing it into the atmosphere. But I imagine there is other ways to recover it and mm. to you know to not actually release it into the into the air. Yeah. I'm not an expert on that stuff. I, I have to admit, Catherine, that I used to when I when I you know occasionally used to fly more, flying across you know Russia and Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, and also when I lived in Romania, the gas flares were pretty impressive when you when you see them at night. <laughs> but what, so what else is coming? What else is coming out of COP28 that may actually vaguely possibly be positive? Well, one of the interesting things just on that methane issue is that there was a big agreement where 50 uh, of the oil majors said they were going to um, reduce their own company emissions, not necessarily the emissions from the oil and gas that they're drilling and selling. But um, the one thing that was missing from that methane discussion was cows. And one of the interesting things about the Al Gore Climate Data Initiative is that it can't go down to the individual cows but it can go down to really big sheds full of cows and entire regions like South Canterbury full of cows. And New Zealand might get a bit of a shock when this satellite goes over a few times yeah. and we all dial up the numbers and see, oof, not only is there um, uh, water in South Canterbury, which we have to think about drinking, but um, the air might be full of methane. Well, I don't imagine that the methane from cows burping in the air is, is going to be a... a an issue problem, for breathing, no. but yeah, but yeah, definitely, it's pollution in terms of you know yep. greenhouse gases. Didn't we also see though, and this goes back to one of the one of the Bernard sores, as it were, is um, the international dairy industry, Danone, and a number of others signing up to um, various climate commitments, and a certain dairy company was not involved in that. Is that right? Fonterra was not was not involved in committing to to reducing its own emissions. At COP28? I don't know about COP28, but Fonterra ha- has made a commitment yeah. to reduce by 30% or something its its emissions over, um, and not just its own emissions, but it's the, the emission in its um, supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. So the news that's come out um, uh, in the last day or so is that uh, Fonterra was uh, missing from a group of dairy companies that pledged to disclose and tackle their methane emissions at COP28. It included Bell Group, Danone, Lactalis and Nestle. Mm. And it is a pledge which Fonterra says they had talked about considering joining it, but the timing wasn't quite right for the dairy cooperative, said someone from Fonterra. And, and that their main focus was on talking about and doing things about on-farm emissions rather than necessarily their, their, right. their own emissions directly. So, yeah, Fonterra and the government, remember, which alienated a big chunk of the Pacific in the last couple of weeks by deciding to reverse the oil and gas ban, risk being, you know, perfectly in tune with the views of New Zealand first voters, but out of tune with the views of the people who buy our exports. Mm. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. That's the thing I've always said is what what the government fails to do in terms of, um, you know, regulating those kinds of emissions. The market will eventually do it for it, uh, only in a way where the if there's taxes to be made or whatever, they'll be collected somewhere else. You know, it'll it'll end up hurting all of us. Just finally, on the issue of um, the climate and markets, uh, this week we saw the fourth auction failure in a row in the emissions mm. trading scheme, which means that the government is going to miss out on another $900 million in revenue. This is a government which is scrambling around for uh, coins at the back of the couch to pay for its tax cuts, and losing that isn't great. Secondly, the the logic here is that when the auction fails, the the emissions trading credits that the government would have put into the system, and in part designed to stop prices from rising too high, they're gone. So one of the reasons James Shaw is um, quietly not 
unhappy about the failure of the auction is that it could put, if the market's allowed to do its thing, could put upward pressure on the carbon price and therefore flow through into higher petrol prices. Of course, one of the things the government doesn't want. So uh, we'll have to watch the space to see what the government does. And Catherine, um, the, just finally, the, the thing we should watch for from the Climate Commission this week. Well, yeah, the Climate Commission has um, given its advice on how to meet the second emissions reduction budget. So they've given advice to the new climate change minister, um, Simon Watt, and that advice is supposed to go public in the next week or so, and it's going to be really, really interesting because we know from the from the, gov- the new government's climate policies coming in, there's a lot of question marks about how exactly mm. they're expecting to meet that um, budget. So... Uh, um, what will be interesting to find out is whether or not they follow the Climate Commission's advice, and if they're not going to follow it, how are they going to, you know, jerry up those um, those credits to meet the to meet the budget? Right. So it's going to get quite spicy, I think. Yeah, Catherine, can I ask you, you and Bernard, a, a last question before before we go to our next subject? Am I right in thinking that Rod Orham is the only New Zealand journalist representing a particular New Zealand media organisation at COP28? That is my understanding as well. Does that actually also put the onus onto New Zealand media to think? I mean, apart from the fact that we should have you know, dug deep into our pocket purses to send Catherine to COP28, but that is a remarkable lack of investment in this story, isn't it? It, it is. Unfortunately, it's it's not new. Most cops haven't had uh, journalists there unless it happened to be in London or very close to London where we have mm. some foreign correspondents. And um, it's just a symptom of relatively poor climate coverage in some in some parts of the media. I have to say, though, that uh, the New Zealand Herald stuff and RNZ in particular have had and still do climate specialists. Um, mm-hmm. Jamie Morton, uh, Eloise Gibson, Olivia Wannan, among others, are uh, excellent at covering the um, the climate, and we have to hope that they all stay and employed as specialists in that area for as long as possible. Mm. That would uh, that would be good. Thank you very much, Catherine. Lovely to see Thanks, you. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. See you later. Now we're now um, joined by Carmen Parahi, my old colleague from Stuff, who is the Te Puaki. Uh, uh, what was it? What, what is your actual title? Is it editor in chief of Tepuaki, or is it what did I see you, you described as the other day, Komatua? Do I need to come and give you some Māori language lessons? Yeah, yeah, you do. Honestly, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is the uh, Putiaki Matua. Putiaki, yeah, Matua. That's that Putiaki yeah. Matua. So uh, I um, help roll out Putiaki. Uh, across the whole business, and I work in the executive team, not an editorial. Yeah, no, it's totally brilliant that you're doing that. And so I've asked you to come in today because we are, and, and I want to be very, I said to you in a note, I want to be very careful about forcing you into a sort of political position. But I'm really interested in what you're, you're thinking about the way the government, the new coalition government, has really led off on some of these, in the coalition agreement and in its own behaviour in some of these both marginal areas, which you know about what one might think of as marginal areas, such as you know whether you call Waka Kotahi Waka Kotahi or the New Zealand um, Transport Agency, but then also quite significant areas like co-governance, the legacy of Hapuapua. Are you comfortable to talk to us about that, please? I Hemahi Maiohaki Kōrua ko Pereroa ko Bernard. I am actually, and when you you text me and said, Carmen, can you come on our show? And I'm like, of course I can come and support your wonderful show um, that millions of people listen to every week. I I was actually interested in your text because um, about not politicising me because of my role at stuff. Uh, And it made me laugh because one, I work in the media uh, and uh, I've always got something to say about uh, politics from a media perspective, not a staff perspective. Uh, and two, I am wahine Māori, and I have always been told that being Māori is being political because we as Māori have been politicised forever. From the first laws ever made in this country, from Te Tiriti or Waitangi 
you will see Māori people in the political spectrum of uh, this country. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's more, I, what I was trying to be careful of, of Carmen, and I, and I will always be careful of I this with you. I know what you're trying to say, is yeah. there's, there's two aspects here. Is one, if you're in a, you know, one of those aspects of diversity, uh, whether it's at work or or even in this kind of context, is that it should not necessarily be the only representative of a minority group or of, of a group who has to represent that diversity. We both know that. But also, I don't want to push you into a kind of uh, party political position when you have you know an incredibly important journalistic role. But what do you think about this? We, we've talked on, on the show before, not necessarily with you, about what I've thought of as the the, the grumpy Pākehā vote that, that Winston and ACT have vacuumed up, and I'm allowed to say that because I'm not a proper working journalist like you, but <laughs> the, they've tro- chosen some real culture war kind of little buttons. You know, like we saw that, remember that video of Chris Luxon, Christopher Luxon and Nelson, I think it was, with a bunch of people with grey hair, and of course I admire people with grey hair, all saying, why don't, you know, what is the health ministry called now and so on? What What's your sense of why they've chosen these small button issues but but they're hot buttons for a number of people well one you could ask whether they actually have any ideas or innovation to take us forward uh because a lot of the policies we're looking at are quite backward looking mm. uh the country has been progressing along a kaupapa whether it's uh and it's not about maori rights or te reo maori it is actually just progressing as a cohesive society, a country made up of an indigenous group, made up of different uh, ethnicities and multiple uh, cultures. And so to move forward as a country, you have to have vision and innovation and think about progressing the country. So a lot of the policies we're seeing at the moment seem quite backward. Uh, Mm. More so, uh, our government uh, and I, I I have no political ties to anyone. I really I'm a journalist, and so I I just speak from a very generic perspective about all things political. But the fact that you have to uh, take things back and spend money on money has already been spent to yeah. progress a bilingual title. Uh, money has already been spent to uh, figure out whether we want bilingual signs around the country. And now you want to spend more money to take away that bilingual name when, in fact, you should just leave it as it is, just stop spending on money on promoting it. So just yeah. leave it as it is. It's, we, we are called um, Stuff Group. We were Stuff, and now we're called Stuff Group. And so now we're going to have to, we call ourselves Stuff Group. But we are also Te Puna. So we have we are we have we have a bilingual name to Puna Stuff Group, and we use it interchangeably. So to Puna or Puna or Stuff or Stuff Group, we use our names interchangeably. Why waste taxpayer dollars, millions more dollars, of wasting time and money on uh, changing the names of uh, Waka Kotahi, which I really like actually. I, I'm like into Waka Kotahi. I've gotten used to I've got, you know, since coming back to New Zealand, I've really mm. gotten used to it. I'm perfectly comfortable yeah. with it. Um, yeah. You know, the health authority took me a little longer. Bernard, you're just sitting there itching, I can see. Yes. Um, well, I'm on board with Te Putia Matua. Great use of the word shepherd or uh, someone who's looking after things. Yep. The organisation looking after the money, that, yep. that's, that makes sense to me. Is yes. that the Reserve Bank? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think Adrian Orr has been one of the leading figures in the machinery of government. And I actually think the centre-right, I suppose you could call it, National Act, New Zealand First, grumpiness about a lot of these cultural conversation issues is partly a real grumpiness about other problems that they have with the Reserve Bank and with Adrian Orr. But then again, that's me as a um, monetary policy, fiscal policy nerd, thinking about the world through that lens. So is, this is this is the whole, is Adrian, I mean, I I, I don't want to use the, the, the W word, in which case, in this case, I mean woke, and I, I'm not going to go there because I, I am exhausted by the by the mis, misuse of that word. Come, what about the more significant, perhaps, aspects of this? I was, I'm really struck by this uh, turnaround on co-governance, 
the rejection to some extent of a very long-term National Party commitment to Maori rights and to te tiriti. Since, you know, Bolger, Chris Finlayson, there seems to be a retrenchment. I mean, I mean, I think you will find that we we on this show often talk about ourselves being progressive rather than Labour or 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 anything on the left. But that seems a, a regressive move and perhaps more dangerous, really, than renaming Waka Kotahi. I'm not sure it's dangerous. I wouldn't give them that much. Uh, what I would say is just give them some time to just really for us to start to see what they're actually going to do. So. A lot of bluster, a lot of kōrero, a lot of talk. Uh, and I want to see the policies. I want to see where they're going to spend their money. I find it interesting. We've got more ministries under this new government than we had in the last one. We've got more ministers inside the inner circle than we had in the last government. Ministers and ministries equals millions of dollars for taxpayers, mm. right? Mm. It's a taxpayer dollar. So already they're spending more money than they're actually making some uh, not that it's up for them not that they make us money but they're actually spending a lot of money already and I just want to see the actions and what actually plays out because so you're not panicking give... you're not you're not panicking or seeing it nah. as a sort of constitutional crisis as it were between Maori not and Pakeha in New Zealand not yet but mm. we need to see where Luxon goes with these two how he manages both of them um, I do see, you know, um, other media commentators talking about uh, about the, the the triple threat, the three of them uh, mm. imploding, and we're going to have to go into another election. I, I, we're not there yet, uh, but I do think we need we do need to give Luxon a chance to see what he can actually do in the first hundred days and see what those actions are. But what I will say also, one thing I do want to say is that. It is not up to the government to tell Māori how to be Māori. Mm. So we we will continue on in our own merry way, uh, supporting and using our te reo Māori and working with those who want to work with us um, to progress Aotearoa New Zealand. Uh, we will continue to um, thrive and make the most of the resources that we do have in our organisations, in our iwi entities, in our hapu authorities, in our marae committees, we, uh, funding is good for some things, but funding does not determine my identity as a wahine Māori. Or the government doesn't determine my identity as a wahine Māori. There's been quite a, you know, uh, an eruption of protest. And uh, I think even the government's been surprised by the blowback to a lot of this. Uh, Christopher Luxon said a couple of days ago, he thought it was unfair. But there's an excellent cartoon that was published in Stuff Papers yesterday from Sharon Murdoch, which really for me captured the the issue spectacularly well in, a, in an image. And I think we're really uh, blessed with cartoonists in, in both newspaper groups, actually. The picture, and if you haven't seen it yet, please go out and buy stuff paper. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> Great to idea, it. Bernard, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is the most beautiful picture of the the three amigos uh, looking at a tsunami-like image, which is the flag coming down on them and them saying it'll die down. Do, do you think it will die down? Um, I know it will ramp up until we start to see what their actions are. So what I would do is encourage Māori in particular, because I do get concerned that our people are getting angry, uh, hurt, and are fearful. So this is actually about fear because we've progressed so far, so much in the last um, few decades that it hurts us to be told that Māori language is of no value. Therefore, all of your cultural practices uh, that relate to Māori, te reo Māori, are also of no value. So that sort of uh, policy which is actually racist because there is no other way of what do you call a policy that would take away your English language away from you, Bernard and Peter? Mm. Some people would say I should have my language taken away. 
come and were you surprised at the scale of them of the demonstrations on Monday and the speed and sort of breadth that that I mean, I know, I, I don't mean again. It's it's not just a Tapati Māori thing. I know it was organised by by Tapati Māori, but um, were you were you surprised at the sort of organisational speed and scale of that protest? I don't know why people keep being surprised by Māori. Māori can mobilise so fast, so quickly, and at scale. We do it because we learn how to do it at our marae. We do it when we have to convene really quickly for a tangihanga, mm -hmm. uh, which is a funeral at our marae. We did it during COVID. All of our people on our, our um, uh, health groups went out and uh, iwi groups and they mobilised really quickly. They set up the roadblocks. They set up uh, special water, food, medical supplies, all of these things we set up and mobilised really quickly. And... We have a long, long, long history of being active politically and coming together politically to um, activate. For like, we're talking over a hundred years of actually people protesting around um, the way we're being treated by the government. So it's been successive governments mm -hmm. over 180 years about how Māori have been treated. So Māori would protest by actually going to visit. Uh, to Queen Wikitoria, so the, Victor mm. the Queen uh, Queen Victoria uh, and the Crown, always. We went either go straight to the Crown or we go straight to government. We have really long history of our leaders uh, writing letters, creating their own news media to actually um, protest against the way we were being treated, about land confiscations, about land being taken away in language and so forth. So, Carmen, you, you, you were very sanguine about that and you said, you know, let, let Luxon get through his 100 days, let's see how they go. What, what are the triggers that will worry you? I mean, it is interesting that, the, that, that National has agreed to let the Act idea for a referendum at least go to a select committee. Uh, the new Attorney General is talking about, you know, differences in approach about co-governance. What, what will be the triggers that will, that will worry you? Uh, when they start to demand that uh, change happens within our court system, in our legal system, in our court system, that should actually trigger everybody because mm. they have no business doing that. Uh, and but also how they roll out uh, to their Māori use. Already, I've been told yesterday that official documents coming out of gov out of ministries, there is not a single, not a kiora, mm -hmm. not a, a single te reo Māori word on there. Which is weird because everyone uses Kyoto today, right? Today they it's do, just yes, a common exactly. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. For everyone, everyone uses it. It's not, it's not a big deal. Uh, but when those things start to accumulate over time, then we will know uh, where they're going. But but those protests will continue to build, and so they should. Uh, but at the same time, you know, let's let's see what Luxon is actually going to do. How he's going to manage these two. And how is it actually going to give us, give New Zealand some progress and some confidence, give our business sector confidence, give our economies confidence, but and give our people confidence that actually they are the government that will continue to move us forward. If they're not, then we have every right, Māori, non-Māori, to actually protest them being there because they should be progressing the whole of Aotearoa New Zealand, not just for Māori, but for everyone. God, you're so eloquent. I'll vote for you. I know I don't have to vote for you yet, but I will. Thanks so much, Carmen. I really, I really appreciate you doing. Or we really appreciate you doing this. I mean, I, again, I, I'm always cautious about using you as a, as, as a spokesman, but you're you're so eloquent in this, and I and I feel very, uh, I feel more comfortable about you doing it than than me sticking my neck out. Not, not which is not to say that I'm not entirely happy to stick my neck out in all sorts of areas. But thank <laughs> you so much for doing that, Bernard. Do you want to say something before? Yes, thank you very much, Carmen. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya. Robert, how are you, how are you getting on this week? It's been a fairly extraordinary uh, – I, I wrote something this week about, about uh, Netanyahu just pushing on. There's determination to push on. He's really stretching some of those alliances that, that Israel has long had, isn't he? He is. And, of course, the Americans have laid down apparently some – at least four red lines – which I think we previously discussed. And uh, the uh, Netanyahu, uh, nevertheless, um, American concerns, growing concerns, uh, have not in, has not yet 
reach the point where it interrupts their flow of arms to Israel. And um, yes, through the eyes of, I think, many third parties, uh, America is speaking out of both sides of its mouth at the moment. And so that's mm. it's expressing real concern about the civilian losses in the Gaza. Uh, we know that the Palestinians, according to one source, is are now losing about 266 civilians a day, which is appalling. And uh, I think the pressures are really mounting now on the Biden administration. Mm. There's clear signs of unease within both the military establishment in the United States and I think increasingly within the Democratic Party. So, yes, Netanyahu is pushing in because, as we discussed before, the thing that's difficult to disentangle about this situation is to what extent Netanyahu's determination to continue is driven by his own concern about political survival. While this conflict's going on, he's he's deflecting some questions. Yes, yeah. exactly, because the trial, his his corruption trial has come back into frame. Yeah, it's it's such an interesting set of problems. I I, I mean, I feel bad having even raised three or four weeks ago the whole idea that this you know that that a truly brave leader would use this as a as a way to go to a two two state solution but it that that whole idea is just is not realistic with netanyahu it seems well you, you it's not with netanyahu but you know israel faces very tough choices i think what's happened in the last 8 weeks has confirmed what many of us knew at the beginning that there's no military solution to this problem and if you then concede that is true, that even if they eliminate Hamas, which they won't, but even if they did, that would not solve the problem because there are lots of civilians killed who will be whose remaining relatives will be dedicated to getting some sort of revenge. So they have to find some sort of political initiative. And I think Israel is going to have to make some very painful decisions, which have effectively been postponed since Oslo. And uh, it won't be Netanyahu because I don't think Netanyahu is going to survive very long. Um, the clearly mm. the families of the hostages are extremely upset. But there's also his the fact that he regarded Hamas as a strategic asset, um, uh, and was quoted as much, you know, in the media to offset the Palestinian Authority in a sense. Well, to actually prevent the prospect of a two-state solution. One of the reasons the two-state solution hasn't been made much progress is because of Mr. Netanyahu's determination to avoid it. And he fell out with Mr. Rabin before he was assassinated over this old question. It, it is interesting that that, 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 you know, that existential threat that Israel feels could actually be, to some extent, created by Mr. Security. I mean, Israel is a diverse society. I mean, there's been some really brave people speaking out at a time when many Israelis um, are giving Mr. Netanyahu the benefit of the doubt. Gideon Levy is one of them uh, who works for Haratz, but there are a number of other people, and uh, they are basically questioning his strategic judgment. Yeah. Uh, they are saying, actually, are you making Israel more secure by what you're doing? No, you're not. And this is what they're saying. And Israel is a democracy, and ultimately... I think the politician that can make the best case for securing Israel, even if it means they can't realize the dream of a greater Israel at the expense of the Palestinians. Mm. And I think that, you know, what we've seen, I mean, many people quite naturally are, are concentrating on Gaza at the moment, but there are some absolutely shocking things occurring in the West absolutely. Bank, yeah. the occupied territory. More than 260 Palestinians have been killed by armed Israeli settlers supported by Netanyahu's army. And the Americans are now sanctioning, and you know, this looks a bit like a slap, a slap across the wrist. They're sanctioning the families, but voices are developing in the United States from AOC and others who are saying, actually, why are we arming them? Why are we giving arms to people who are, you know, acting in illegal fashion? Particularly when at the, at the same time, um, uh, Biden is having to tell the Ukrainians that 
they're going to run out of funds by the end of this year to send arms to Ukraine. And it's interesting yeah. to see the likes of uh, Josh Paul, a, uh, a US State Department official who resigned over this a couple of months ago, coming yeah. out and challenging the government on uh, the US government on uh, just how much materiel and arms are going to Israel, which are then being mm. dumped on Gaza. And th- this, for me, is 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 interesting how Gaza has not only uh, knocked the United States off course, particularly its unity within the Democratic Party, but has mm. distracted it from Ukraine. Yes. And it also has exposed, I think, America's blind spot, which has been present not just during this crisis, for, but for the best part of the last three decades. Mm. One, of, one of its biggest failings after 9-11 uh, was not to push ahead and get a Palestinian state. Yeah. The absence of a Palestinian state means that you've got a group of very angry people who are frustrated because their desire for political self-determination is being denied, and they in turn became vulnerable to the message from extremists, such as Hamas. Um, and, you know, in a sense... Uh, the Americans, they've continually protested, as we've discussed before, the illegal occupation and the expansion of these illegal occupations of the West Bank and also East Jerusalem, but they haven't actually done anything about it. So they are actually, you know, at some point, not only does Israel have to face up to making tough choices, the United States is facing this now. Mm. Which is very difficult, very difficult to do as they head towards an election where Trump, who recognised I mean, at least brought about the Abraham Accords, but you know moved moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. You know, you have to wonder whether yeah. whether that is a card that Netanyahu is very dangerously trying to play at the moment. I wonder too if events are going to intervene in the Red Sea. And one of the things about um, America's involvement here is there's a lot of standing off in, in expanses of water near Israel. Um, waiting to be um, rocketed by the Houthis or uh, whoever yeah. the Iranians are supporting. Mm. And I understand the last couple of days, the attacks have been incredibly intense. You know, they're having yeah. to shoot down all these missiles coming their way. And it's starting to affect trade through mm. the Red Sea, which, of course, is yeah. the Suez Canal. We're talking 30% of the volume of world trade. The idea that um, that 30% would have to go down and around South Africa again um, yep. uh, at the same time as the Panama Canal is full up. Uh, you know, uh, I wonder how long the Americans can stand off, try to shoot down whoever's trying to hit them and not do anything mm. and not try to resolve it all. In a sense, the United States, with its unconditional at least initially, unconditional support for Israel's right to self-defense, which assumed almost that Israel's right to self-defense was limitless, of course, which it isn't, and which America is quickly realizing and drawing, recoiling from what's happening. Um, That has been a strategic disaster for both the United States and Israel because it has allowed other actors, such as Iran, such as China, such as uh, Russia, Mr. Putin, who, of course, is uh, wanted by the ICC, is visiting uh, the UAE. Yeah, so, good yeah. segue. Excuse me, Robert. We normally do we normally do the segues here, but that was very deft of you. So <laughs> let's let's connect these connect these dots. You've got you've got this uh, uh, indicted war criminal going to the UAE. Being treated as a you know as a, as the leader of a major foreign power as of course he should be, uh, although not arrested on the on the doorstep, and he's gone to Saudi Arabia. Is that to do with oil, or is it to do with Ukraine, or what? What's going on there, please? I, I think it is to do with oil and what is those powers involved see as convergence of interest. Mr. Putin and Saudi Arabia's leader Mohammed bin Salman have been. Very cosy with each other for a long mm. time. Uh, but I think America should be getting very tough with both the UAE and uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, after all, if it wasn't for America, Saudi Arabia, I mean, America, you know, they've got Israel's back, but they've also got Saudi Arabia's mm. back mm. as well. And I think they should be spelling out a few truths to the Saudi regime, such as what do you do entertaining someone that is. Uh, 
head of an authoritarian regime which has illegally invaded its neighbour. Mm. And uh, I, I find it extraordinary that the United States has not condemned the, you know, the visit of Putin. Yes. Maybe they have by now, by the time we're speaking. But, you know, in, in a sense, uh, America's now got itself into a position of strategic incoherence. What do you think Putin is trying to do there, Robert? Because it, it, it is quite interesting strategically that he's gone there, COP28's on in, in the UAE, of course. Yeah. The, you know the the oil price, I think, is down to a to a two and a half or three month low. There's evidence of low demand. He's had oil relationships with with the UAE and Saudi on price, but then also you've got this very critical moment, it seems, on Ukraine, where the money, the you know, the US has yeah. not approved any new money for for Ukraine for months now. We're getting to a bit of a bit of an end game here, aren't we? Yeah. Well, that, the interesting thing is that Germany is beginning to step up its support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, Mr. Cameron, the new British foreign minister, has basically recognised that the American support is in danger and has, and has called on all members of NATO to make the necessary adjustments, as he put it, mm. to support Ukraine with diminished American support. So I think the Europeans may be recognising um, that they're going to have to make some painful decisions of their own, like providing more support. We also understand that Mr. Peters, the new foreign minister in New Zealand, has indicated he's not averse to increasing support for Ukraine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, including, for example, um, those um, armoured personnel vehicles, the LAVs, which we apparently denied to the Ukrainians under the previous government. Yes. So, uh, what you know, in a sense, yes, America's support may be, because of domestic politics, at risk for Ukraine. But it's not all is necessarily lost, particularly if the Europeans and other countries, including New Zealand, step up. New Zealand has a huge stake in Mr. Putin being rebuffed in his attempt to seize Ukraine. And so, you know, we're not disinterested observers here. So what did you think, Robert, of the first um, week or so of the foreign minister and um, not only uh, his views on AUKUS 2, whether New Zealand should join that, but also the parliamentary motion today uh, um, calling for a ceasefire and a two-state solution? Yes, well, that's uh, I wasn't privy to that. So that, that just happened this afternoon. The, 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 yeah. Well, I'm pleased that's happened uh, because I think New Zealand really did have to come out and demand a lasting ceasefire. And I, 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 I think it's very important, you know, New Zealand, uh, we're a country which, you know, the country's founded, it's a settler nation. It's founded on the notion of a treaty between uh, the settlers from Europe and the indigenous Maori. And it's important that New Zealand is very clear where it stands not only for its own sense of national identity, but also because we do actually believe in a strengthening of the international rules-based mm-hmm. order. And what we're witnessing in the Israel-Gaza conflict is a serious erosion. In fact, you could say both parties have acted with impunity and have committed war crimes. Mm-hmm. And so that if that is allowed to continue without us speaking up, it has grave repercussions for the way, for New Zealand's worldview, for New, the way we'd like to see the world organised. So, are you are you giving Foreign Minister um, Peters a sort of a sort of uh, gold star and a hippopotamus stamp, or not yet? Well, I'd, I'd have to see the statement. This was a revelation to me. Yeah. Sorry, but I understand. It, does that mean that New Zealand's official position now it's demanding or calling for? Uh, an immediate not cease. quite. It's saying it's saying that the condi- it's a bit more conditional than that, isn't it, Bernard? It's really saying oh. the conditions need to be right for a you know for a ceasefire. This has to end. It's not so. Quite- it's the same as the national position before when they rubbished what Hipkins. They're not they're not moving to the Hipkins position of calling for a lasting ceasefire with no ifs or buts. Yeah. So the latest report out um, this afternoon, about an hour ago, from Christopher Luxon, he says that uh, the uh, parliamentary motion comes with quote conditions, mm. and um, 
He was asked by Chris Hipkins in Question Time this afternoon about why the government didn't go further in its ceasefire stance. Oh. And mm. uh, he it's said, still a bit conditional. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he'd like to see a sustainable ceasefire, but actually it requires all parties to actually make the conditions to make that happen. So it sounds to me like it's a parliamentary motion, which sounds good in practice, but in terms of what the government's going to do with it, it's one of it's those... It's tentative though, isn't it? Yeah, uh, in yeah. a sense, New Zealand, uh, it, what Mr Peters is doing, as he said earlier in the week, he... He wants to contribute to urgent discussions to bring about a lasting ceasefire. Correct. But uh, New Zealand needs to lead by example, declare that it wants a lasting ceasefire, and then uh, work actively in diplomatic terms with other like-minded countries, Mm. such as Ireland and the Scandinavian countries, to try to bring this about. Uh, We we seem to be still playing a bit of wait and see from what I can see. I hope I'm not being... Unfair. Yeah, I don't want to overdramatize it as well, Robert. But I was interested to send you because you know one one you know reasonable people, of course, can accept that Israel has a right to defend itself. But I sent you a piece today from yeah. the from the Financial Times, noting that the destruction in yes, northern Gaza. I read it with great interest. Thank yeah, you. is of sixty eight percent of buildings have been destroyed, and that compares with sixty one percent in Cologne and fifty nine percent in Dresden during World War II. And this is from the FT, which is not a gratuitous, you know, it's not, we're not trying no. to trying to match A to A with Z, or uh, it, it, is, it is a really interesting idea, and especially when there is no political trap, it would appear, from Netanyahu. That's why I think New Zealand's, it, what, what, what Bernard has just outlined about Mr. Peter's position, still doesn't match the gravity of the situation. We are seeing literally hundreds of Palestinians killed on a daily basis. Uh, About 70% of those, according to the UN, are women Mm -hmm. and children. We're talking about mass murder here because these people being killed were not implicated. Many of them were not implicated in the terror attacks on Israel. We are seeing about close to 80%, 75%, according to the UN, of Palestinians being displaced from their homes. And as Peter just indicated, another shocking development. Um, it wasn't quite the figure that, you know, that's quoted, quoted in the FT. I, I read the uh, figure from uh, satellite sources that about 50% of the entire residential buildings in the country mm. have been seriously damaged or destroyed in, 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 less, in about eight mm. weeks. So this is, and in addition, be, uh, we've seen more than 260 Palestinians, many of whom are farmers, killed in the West Bank. And I, I think it's, it's all very well calling for a ceasefire conditions, but I, I think New Zealand needs to lead by example and demand an immediate and lasting ceasefire. Mm. After all, there are very strong reasons for that. Um, there is political, you know, let's go through this. Moral, we always think of ourselves as a, a country which believes in fairness and the importance of values and humans. That's one factor. There's a moral reason. Secondly, uh, there's also uh, an important strategic reason. Mr. Netanyahu has applied ever more quantities of military force, and yet, uh, that the, indica- the evidence suggests that Hamas have not been eliminated. And what's more, they actually may be being politically boosted by this annihilation strategy. Yeah, let, let, me, just, let me just address a couple of questions that have come up, Robert, in our, in our um, sure. feed from, from somebody who's calling themselves IP67 and, and from others. Uh, and I do get this. I mean, there is no doubt that Hamas is a terror organization, that the tunnel oh, network sure. and the resources that they've devoted to protecting themselves and creating these tunnel networks are a disgrace in a sense that they, you know, had that ingenuity and resources been devoted to improving the lives of Gazans. But that this person also asked a question why, about why, why Egypt isn't allowing Gazans en masse to cross the border. And of course, the point of that partly is a they don't want them. They don't want two million Gazans suddenly arriving, but also that yeah. is to 
participate in the mass displacement of a particular racial group, which takes you very dangerously towards um, aspects yep. of genocide law, correct? Yes, and there are members of the National Yahoo right-wing coalition which have openly expressed their goal of effectively scattering the population of Gaza into neighbouring Arab countries, including Egypt. Exactly, exactly. I think this is a really, really interesting issue. And you know I've been extremely cautious about the word genocide in this, but increasingly you see some of these stances really creeping towards it, and it's such a dangerous, such a dangerous area. Yeah. Just to clarify for everyone, I've checked the Hansard. Um, the motion from Winston Peters calling for a, a, a quote um, that New Zealand take, quote, urgent steps towards establishing a ceasefire has passed. There were amendments put forward by Labour uh, to bolster it to say urgently call for an immediate and permanent ceasefire. That did not pass. Uh, although an amendment from Phil Twyford um, talking about uh, support for a two-state solution was included in the oh, final interesting. motion. That's, so yeah. I will include the full motion and the debate from Hansard in the show notes with today's uh, podcast. And I'll send you immediately after this, um, uh, Robert, Thanks. the, the, full, the full debate. Thank you, Robert. And, and you might like to stay for our skateboarding dog, which which is really of course. Uh, a skateboarding terrier, which is Boris Johnson. <laughs> and uh, I, I may have said this before, but you know, if you ever think that New Zealand's response to COVID was difficult or chaotic or confused, you ain't seen nothing compared to what's coming out from the UK COVID inquiry, uh, let alone the destruction, accidental supposed destruction of 5,000 WhatsApp messages written by the Prime Minister of the, of oh. the United Kingdom. <laughs> and he has no idea how they were lost. And But of course, he didn't do a factory reset because he doesn't know what that is. But the, the, the coolest one so far was that his, he, was, uh, he asked, the, asked the Department of Defence to investigate the possibility of using the SAS to do a strike on a, um, on a, on a pharmaceutical factory in uh, the Netherlands. Just just across the North Sea, uh, when the EU was being difficult about exporting COVID vaccines outside um, Europe, so I, I think we can rest assured that we were somewhat better managed than than Boris. But more to come tomorrow because he has another day of evidence. Yes, he's demonstrated considerable anaesia, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, Britain doesn't doesn't have great um, uh, history when it comes to um, airborne attacks in in Holland. This is why I get puzzled when people in New Zealand are so critical of the way the government handled COVID. I mean, Mm. the United States lost more than a million. Britain lost more than 250,000 people from COVID. And it was through chaos. This is also the thing. I mean, I I don't know. My my sense, having watched, I mean, when I came back, I started writing a daily column for Bernard when he was at Newsroom about global preparedness and how things were going. And I tell you what, you know, New Zealand is is a long way away, but you know, there are other places that are islands that did a lot worse. Anyway, thank you, Robert. It's really good of you to to stay with us. Thank you. And and, uh, I hope you're getting paid a lot to learn Torea. (laughs) <laughs> well, what the irony of this, of course, all of this debate, is that the current and new Prime Minister promised on his first day as the opposition leader that he was going to take today lessons. And as the CEO of New Zealand, he made an awfully big um, fuss about the use of Tarao on planes, in uh, communications, promotions. In fact, um, tried, we understand, to patent the phrase Kyoto. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I said, imagine how dull New Zealand would be if we didn't have that. And also, I'd like to, Aotearoa, I don't, is that what Winston Peters was referring to when he said, I don't want to, I don't want some French colonial term to describe New Zealand? I don't think that was quite on the money, was it? No, no, I think, I think they've, I think National Act New Zealand First have missed the mood of the nation on this. And if the new Prime Minister wants to understand better um, how wrong he is and where he's gone wrong, he should have a chat to the All Blacks. Yes. Who are definitely part of the New Zealand Aotearoa, New Zealand fabric of life. And the first thing they do on the field of play is the most stirring haka. And I cannot imagine anyone who is trying to represent um, who we are as New Zealand, and you'd hope that a Prime Minister at least aspires to that, 
believes that somehow downplaying the um, te reo Māori and te ao Māori in our country is the right thing to do. I'd suggest he has a chat. Bernard, chat. You're the new, you're the new Mike, you're the new liberal Mike Hosking. I like this. There's a part of me that wants every day to come out and do a, an anti-Mike minute, but um, life's too short. But I, I genuinely think he does need to have a chat to uh, Sam Cain and uh, the um, uh, whoever is the new coach mm. of the All Blacks and the CEO of New Zealand Rugby to understand how what. Remember, New Zealand Rugby was the one that's, that wanted the the Springboks tour. Seth Blasey, absolutely. And, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And now, now it is um, rightly presenting... It's gone, all, it's na- gone all woke, Bernard. It's gone all woke. Yeah. Uh, it, it presenting this national team as what it is. It is our national team, and the way it expresses itself is in te ao Māori. Thank you very much. I uh, look forward to next week. Thanks again, thank Robert. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you. Love to see you. Cheers. Bye. And thank you for the audience. See you all next Bye-bye. week. Bye-bye. And Simon. Bye-bye.